Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week I explore the top stories making waves in the news and some that are just plain interesting. I'll connect you with the journalists and the people who know the story and bring you news without the noise so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of the Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, I'll be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the biggest debates of the pandemic was how to proceed with school as the virus disrupted everything. Everything from learning remotely or in person to wearing masks was a point of contention. But at the Lewis Palmer School District in Colorado, they chose to keep kids in class and make masks optional. What resulted were students who flourished and boosted some of their test scores when other districts in the state lagged behind. For more on this, we'll speak to Perry Stein, education reporter at The Washington Post. I landed on Lewis Palmer, which is right outside of Colorado Springs, and they opened in the fall of 2020 with all elementary school students in person full time, or I should say all elementary students who wanted to go. Families could still do virtual, but the overwhelming opted to go in person five days a week. They decided, they based this off a study that showed at the time that kids 10 and under didn't spread the virus as much, so they decided to go maskless um, to make masks optional at the elementary school level in classrooms. Um, and, you know, it was at the time, it was Palmer, or the county that Lewis Palmer is located in, they didn't have a, they, they were below national averages on um, COVID rates. It's a pretty wealthy school district, so a lot of parents working from home, and it's pretty, um, you know, it's it's a sprawling neighborhood. It's not like city. There's like, if there's like one or two apartment buildings that I saw that, you know, served, and those were small buildings that served the school district. So, you know, people weren't living on top of each other, it, yeah. and they went to reopen schools, and parents and teachers felt comfortable with this, and they did it. We saw the negative effects that happened play out because of some of the closures. Obviously, a lot of kids found it really difficult to learn at home. It just wasn't their regular thing. Uh, We saw a lot of them have mental health issues. That emotional maturity, just from not being around peers and kind of learning how things go, we heard of a lot of fights breaking out as soon as kids started going back to school. Yeah. You know, so we've seen all these negative effects. But here in this school district, thankfully, a lot of that stuff didn't happen. Tell me about some of the test scores that we saw, because this is where I think in reading, a lot of the students had an uptick, maybe in math, not so much, but they were having great scores compared to the overall state numbers. Yeah, I think that's true. And I want to be clear. I mean, the kids here and the school leaders will still tell you that in Lewis Palmer, they did endure a pandemic, right? And that's really stressful, the uncertainty. They had quarantines, routines were broken. I'm sure parents had anxiety, some of theirs that, you know, kids can feel and understand. So they did still, you know, they are still seeing some mental health concerns. They are still having what they're what I would refer to as pandemic induced challenges that they are needing to address. So they weren't spared the pandemic. But yeah, I mean I think you see the results coming out of there are better. I mean no one argued that virtual learning for the vast majority of kids is better than in person learning. So they benefited from getting a whole lot more of in-person learning. So at the elementary school level, you did see big gains in reading um, that outpaced um, scores. Um, math everywhere in the country, from what I have seen, that was really hard to do online. Um, you know, you did see... Uh, some drops there, but not as big as um, the state's drops. And something interesting that I saw 
significant improvements among some of the special education kids that those were the kids that I think largely have been, you know, vulnerable kids that have been um, set back the most from the pandemic because, you know, a lot of their plans and services such as speech therapy, some kids' occupational therapy, one-on-one, just couldn't be delivered as effectively online. Um, Lewis Palmer did bring back um, even their high school special education, their most um, the kids with the highest needs in high school. They brought them back five days a week by November or in November. So, yeah. Um, so those were some of the hopeful things. They still had challenges. I mean, there is a big achievement gap in Lewis. There is an achievement gap in Lewis Palmer between um, between white students and students of color, and that did not um, improve during the pandemic. This figures right into the conversation, as I mentioned earlier. Right, the, the, there was this kind of fight on both sides. You know, who would be right. And a lot of this, when you look at Lewis Palmer, you know, a lot of people say, well, they got lucky that there were no huge outbreaks. And right. I think uh, you mentioned the article, like, you know, overall, like two people went to the hospital and, and they, none of them were students. You know, so they, mm-hmm. a lot of people say, hey, they got really lucky. Others say, you know, they did it right. They followed health guidance. They kept the schools open. They listened to parents and whatnot. A question I have is, you know, how did the teachers feel throughout all of this? Because that was one of the big conversations going around where teachers, teachers unions were saying, well, kids could be spared the, the, the worst of the virus, but the adults, the instructors aren't. You know, it was interesting. Um, I came, I, I covered a lot of the teacher union sites, I could, you know, and a lot of the teachers unions, I will say, were responding to what they felt their communities wanted, that parents wanted. And you see in cities like D.C. where I live, parents didn't want to go back. So it wasn't that the unions differed so vastly from, you know, every parent here. Um but here, you know, I was surprised. I, I tried to talk to as many teachers as I could to really, you know, ensure I understood their viewpoints. And most of the ones, everyone I talked to, and I didn't talk to all the teachers, obviously, felt comfortable going back. They felt that they they saw their kids fall behind that spring when it was virtual learning, and they felt they needed to go back, and they felt that it could be done safely. You know, some there was some teachers, you know, as they, the school district admitted that there were teachers that felt that, this, that they didn't want to go back and left. There were some teachers, though, that felt that the school took too many precautions. Some teachers that didn't want to teach with masks, at least one. So he left the school system. So they were in the gamut, but the vast majority, I mean, they did a survey in July of 2020. That was pretty early on in the pandemic. And the majority of teachers felt that school could be reopened safely. Um, you know, teachers, the teachers that I talked to, most of them did wear masks throughout last year and wanted to wear masks. I mean, I think they had to for most of them, but they wanted to wear masks and still wore masks for Omicron this year. So I think the teachers were fairly on board. Yeah. You know, in the end, uh, obviously, every situation is different. Uh, and luckily for this school district, it, it worked out well. Their students were thriving. Mm-hmm. But they did have a lot of disruptions, obviously. There weren't times where they were just completely open. Because this happened in fall of 2020. So this is when mm-hmm. all school districts were going crazy, hybrid this, full remote learning. They decided to get classes going very early on in the pandemic, still when we were there. You know, so they did have disruptions when case accounts were really going up. They had to close and do remote learning. But overall, even talking to a lot of the students, you know, they felt like it was kind of a normal year. And that, you know, probably lends itself to the argument of why they were doing so good, at least with their scores and whatnot. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I tried to talk to as many students as possible, and it's like, you know, you were asking about something for a kid that was very normal for them. So, yeah, I think they they felt that at least the younger kids felt that it, it worked out pretty, pretty well for them, that, you know, some of them thought that the school, because they were quarantined so much, and again, their kids, they're not following what's happening in every other district, um, right? They only know their own, right. is that uh, felt that they took too many precautions because they got quarantined too much at the older grades. I mean, I, some kids didn't get quarantined at all. Some kids got quarantined multiple times um, that put them back into virtual learning. But yeah, by and large, I mean, again, this is just a look at one school district. I don't yeah. think that everything that they did could be replicated in every other school district or should have been. But I do think, you know, at where we are in the pandemic, it's important to look at all different types of school districts and what types of decisions they made and how they made them and how they fared. Totally. And that's the interesting part. We're going to be unpacking what happened throughout the pandemic for years. And we're going to look back to see what really worked, what didn't work. And, you know, hopefully we can carry that into the future. But this massive disruption that we're going to have to study this for some time and see where what we did right and what we did wrong. Perry Stein, education reporter at The Washington Post. Thank you very much for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Finally for this week, the war in Ukraine has caused a refugee crisis where the UN says that over 3.7 million people have fled the country. But we're also hearing that Russians are leaving because of the invasion too. While most are going to nearby countries, some have made the trip here to the southern border with Mexico, attempting to seek asylum. And there's been frustration that's been mounting as they're not getting in like Ukrainians are. For more on Russians seeking asylum here in the United States, we'll speak to Steve Gregory, reporter for KFI News in Los Angeles. So we found out that a great number of them are flying into Puerto Vallarta, Mexico City, and then they're finding other transportation to get them from those ports of entry up to the U.S.-Mexico border, more specifically the California-Mexico border. The port of San Ysidro is the busiest pedestrian gate in the world. It is a massive line of people and vehicles every day of the week coming and going between U.S. and Mexico. And we find out that a lot of them, the journey that they take to get to that border is pretty mind-boggling. It's pretty amazing. And in fact, one of the women I spoke with down there, her and her husband. So uh, this is Nadia. Her husband is Artum. And their young baby boy is Samuel. And I asked Nadia, I I had to talk to her through Google Translate, which was kind of fascinating as a journalist to do the interview through Google Translate. But through that, we were able to figure out a little bit about her journey here and what she was told when she approached the immigration officer. Officer said, um, not today. Mm, Maybe tomorrow. Mm, Maybe next day. How did you get here? Мы прилетели из России с пересадками в Дубае, Барселоне, добрались до Мехико Сити, и сегодня мы здесь. Барселона, Дубай, Мексико Сити, Мексико Сити. Today here. Bus, bus train. Airplane. Airplane. Now, that's really interesting. And, you know, we've heard the stories of migrants over the years coming to the United States, obviously, when they're mostly coming from Southern American countries and the treacherous trips that they're taking. Ukraine is on the other side of the world. So this is that trip times, you know, much more and coming in by plane and all that. I mean, that's got to be 
really expensive. I sure. mean, you know, uh, for people fleeing their country and losing their homes because in Ukraine, the situation is so dire, things are just being outright destroyed. I mean, that's got to be uh, quite an expensive trip. You know, when I asked, what do you do for a living? And uh, what I got from her was that her husband, Artum, was an engineer or is an engineer and was working in Russia. Now, I don't know whether or not that meant he ha- was a man of means. I'm not clear on that. But a lot of people are selling their belongings. They're just getting rid of everything on that chance that they're going to get into the United States because this is not an easy thing to do. Ukrainians are being let in because when a border official or an immigration customs official asks, okay, if you're seeking asylum on what grounds? And they're like, well, basically look at the news, watch the video. I have no hometown. Everything I owned is gone. My relatives are all killed or whatever the case is. But when you're a Russian and you're coming up and you're asked the same question, the Russian answer is a little different because they still have a home They still presumably have their jobs and whatever the case is. Their life is a little different than Ukrainians. So it's a little bit of a a threshold, different threshold for them. I had seen in in a few other reports that Russians are saying, well, we don't agree what's going on. I've been arrested in some anti-war protest and then subsequently let go. I felt I needed to get out of the country immediately. So that's kind of what some of the reasonings from Russian people trying to get into the country through the Mexico border there. But talking about that threshold, that threshold is already very high for anybody right. uh, trying to seek asylum. So, what I mean, what other recourses can they say, I mean, besides something like that? So I asked Nadia, again, through Google Translate, I asked her specifically about the reason that she and her family came to the U.S. Why are you coming to the United States? Because because it is safe there. Our relatives are there and there is a future for our child. That's uh, interesting, the, the whole Google Translate thing, because you even through that translator, the kind of robotic voice, you can hear what a compelling answer that is. Right. When I heard that answer, too, in real time, you know, you're impacted by it. And this is a young couple. They have a, basically a, a very small infant child. And to make that journey, again, they went from their hometown, which is just outside of Moscow, to Barcelona, to Dubai, to Mexico City, and then from Mexico City to Tijuana. And to do that with the family in tow like that, and they looked tired, but they didn't seem deterred. They seemed hopeful that they were going to be able to get in. What are the conditions like there at the border right now? Because uh, we had been hearing a lot of different things, obviously. Groups, smaller groups of Ukrainians and, and Russians gathering, camping out at the border. Mm-hmm. Also, um, I think uh, Mexican officials moved some of them to right. a, a nearby hotel right. so they wouldn't be camped out there. Tell me that. And then uh, after that, if you could, there's always constantly Southern Americans, Mexicans, people trying to get in normally seeking asylum. How do they feel, too, when, you know, Ukrainians are, it seems like the narrative is they're being given free passes to get in the United they're States. They're being fast-tracked. Yeah, fast-tracked, right. yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, to your first question, when they gather there, what happens is that when they arrive, they usually have no idea what to do. They don't know what process to take. They don't know what's happening. And then they gather in this open plaza area in front of these makeshift gates. Now, the one gate, the San Ysidro gate, they had to actually take the barrier and push it out a little further because there were so many people gathering there. And they do these concrete K-rails. And those are those concrete barriers you might see on roadways or in freeways. So they had to put a couple of those up with concertina wire. So with razor wire. 
all bundled up and then you've got one little tent and an opening and then you have to walk up to there and then you're going to have U.S. Immigration Customs officials standing there. They're going to ask you who you are and what you're doing here. Now, you got to keep in mind, there's still a very, very, very long line of people that have business in the U.S. They may have family in the U.S. They might be workers and they're coming and going and they're standing in the general line, which can take hours to get through. Hours. Now, if you have a trusted traveler card, a Nexus card, or global entry card, there is a fast track lane. In the middle of all of that, then you've got these people seeking asylum. And they just all crowd up and bottleneck into this one little tiny entrance into the United States. And they sit there and they wait. And then an immigration officer calls you over, then you go over. You show them your passport. And as soon as they see a Russian passport, I was told by local media in Tijuana, they're told, you got to step off to the side, we'll deal with you later. They show Ukrainian passport. If everything's going okay, they'll say, come on in. And then you go talk to an immigration officer. And then they begin the interview process and they begin the asylum process. There are Russians that are getting in and they've pled their case successfully. But I'm being told by local media in Tijuana that way more Ukrainians are getting through than Russians. And that area there, when they camp out, as you mentioned, uh, Mexican immigration officials feel a lot of pressure from the U.S., by letting them gather in front of the U.S. entry. It's not a good optic. Totally. Optics are always a huge thing when it comes to the borders and humanitarian yep. crisis. And are we giving people the uh, proper amount of compassion at mm-hmm. least when they're coming through? Yeah, it's a big uh, it's a big ordeal there. Do we know numbers about how many uh, Ukrainians or Russians might be coming over? There was an estimate reported by local media that in the last three months, there were about 8,000, a mixture of 8,000 Ukrainians and Russians that have gathered at this port of entry and have tried to gain entry. Presumably, people in Russia and Ukraine kind of saw the tea leaves, if you will, read the tea leaves and knew bad things were about to happen. So there was a bit of an uptick. Now, the federal government officially told me that the numbers are no higher now than they were this time last year. So it all depends on your perspective. And for those that are getting through uh, and allowed entry, reports are saying that they're giving them a one-year stay in the country for now. And then they'll have to plead their case again. But in something you mentioned earlier, I talked to an elderly gentleman that was standing there from Mexico that was a little upset because the way he put it, the Europeans are being let in, but not people from my homeland or not people from South America or Central America. And simultaneously, while I was there visiting and speaking with this Russian family, there had been a protest going on right behind me of something called Title 42, which is that program that was implemented back in the Trump administration because of COVID-19. It forced everyone, including those seeking asylum, to wait in Mexico or wait in another country. And then when things were lifted, the COVID protocols were lifted, then they would be allowed to come back and plead their case. Caused a lot of problems. It's basically a wait and see in in another country. Whereas before, you could at least come into the U.S. and then you had to kind of stay put until your case was heard. But there was a protest going on at the same time. This gentleman I spoke with So he was a little upset because you had a group of Nigerians and Central Americans and Mexicans all standing there protesting, shouting and chanting that they wanted fair treatment. Steve Gregory, reporter for KFI News in Los Angeles. Thank you very much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Thank you. That's it for this weekend. Be sure to check out The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment. Give us a rating and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow The Daily Dive on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive has been engineered by Tony Sorrentino. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this was your Daily Dive Weekend Edition. <laughs>